So we have finished our discussion of Acts chapter two and the four essentials that they had going for them there as that first church plant, the best church plant ever. Those four essentials are preaching, fellowship, worship, and evangelism. Those were the things that uh, we could see that they had going for them from the very beginning. Devotion to those essentials, uh, even to the exclusion of everything else, allowed the early church to thrive from the start. After describing these distinctive characteristics of the early church, Luke begins to tell the story of how they effectively took ground for the kingdom of God. The church didn't sit and bask in what was happening in in, in the goodness of God or in anything else. They took ground for the kingdom through this Holy Spirit-empowered evangelistic efforts of the people. This brings us to chapter 3, where the story gives us a picture of what the earliest evangelism looked like. Remember from last time that evangelism, it's this kind of a word that we're not sure what to do with, but evangelism is simply sharing the good news about Christ. That's what evangelism is, sharing the good news about Christ. Our text this morning is the entirety of chapter three. We won't be able to cover most of it in detail, but I do want to read the whole story first so we can have the big picture as a backdrop. Let's read it. Chapter three of the book of Acts. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m., the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, and they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. Now, the portico of Solomon was a porch-like structure supported by open-air columns surrounding the courtyard outside of the temple. This was a major gathering place for the people and probably the same place where the events of the day of of Pentecost happened as well. That would have been the same place where that scene happened. Verse 12. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us? as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. Remember they had asked for Barabbas, uh, if you recall. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. And here he points out several Old Testament prophecies which the people knew and believed would eventually come true. 
Verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant, Jesus, and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now, before we draw some key principles for evangelism out of this passage, I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. These principles are important, but honestly, they are not all absolutely necessary. I want you to understand before we do this, that sharing the good news can be as simple as telling your own story of how you were saved. As long as you remember to share that your salvation came by faith in what Christ did on the cross. So while you should let these principles inform your evangelistic efforts, you should not be frozen in place over the idea that you have to remember everything that I will share with you <laughs> this morning. Having said that, let's look a little bit more closely <clears throat> at our text, and we're going to see some solid principles for evangelism that can help us do a better job of reaching out with the gospel. Principles for evangelism. The first principle is this, be careful what you offer. Our text says, when he the lame beggar saw Peter and John about to go into the temple. He began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. This beggar thought he wanted money, but he got something better. He didn't ask for physical or spiritual healing, but he received them both. He asked for a few coins, just a little help to get through another day. Peter basically said, sorry, I'm broke, but I do have Jesus. And if you trust in his name, if you respond to the good news about him with a shred of faith, he will become your savior and he will heal you in ways you haven't yet imagined. Now, where do I get all of that? Let's think through this part of the story and let's realize that physical healing was only a byproduct of what actually happened here. I submit to you that this man put his faith in Jesus Christ and was saved. In this moment, this man believed on the name of the Lord Jesus and received eternal salvation. How do I know that? Well, the text says people used to carry this man. They carried this man to the gate and set him there. Completely paralyzed, his body would have been like dead weight. Peter could not possibly have lifted him up on his feet with one arm. To stand up, this man must have had the faith to at least respond to Peter's one-armed effort. And when he did respond with faith in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God supplied the remaining strength needed, enough even to leap for joy. And I want to illustrate to you the fact that Peter could not have lifted this man up on his feet by himself without the man making some kind of effort and God supplying the strength. So I've got a volunteer pretty strong volunteer, I might say, stronger than you know. And so Connor's coming up. I'm going to be the lame man. Is this right here? And so I'm lame. I'm, I am so lame, ah, say all the young people. And I'm going to be lame. I am paralyzed. I'm, I can't do anything. And uh, give me some money. I'm still wearing gold. All right, so Connor's going to see if he can, just with one arm, if he can just lift me up to my, to my feet. Go ahead, Connor. 
I think you're about to dislocate my shoulder and break my thumb. Good enough. So Connor is really quite strong. And yet, as you can see, as he walks in front of the camera, it's not possible for him to lift me up off the ground. So what am I trying to say? Well, look back at the text and notice the order of things. This is very important. It says, and seizing him by the right hand. So it's it's a one-handed deal. That's number one. He seized him by the right hand. Two, he raised him up. And three, immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Notice that his feet and ankles weren't completely healed or strengthened until he was up. That means this man had to have made some kind of effort before he was totally healed. Because as we just demonstrated, Peter could not have hoisted him to his feet with one arm. This man must have had the faith to at least check (laughs) and see if his legs might actually start working. This man had to have chosen to make an effort to stand up. What was going on here? Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. I believe this guy's eyes got bigger at the name of Jesus. This man knew exactly who Jesus of Nazareth was. Everyone in Jerusalem knew who Jesus was by now. And remember that the word Christ was a title meaning Messiah or Savior. This beggar had heard the stories about Jesus, about his power to heal and his claim to be Messiah. When Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk, this man had enough faith in that name to at least try to stand. He made a tiny step of faith in his heart. And God supplied the power of salvation for eternal life. And if you think about it rationally, you know that physical healing was just the icing on the cake when compared to the eternal life this man had just received. Peter later makes it clear in verse 16, stating that it was on the basis of faith in the name of Jesus that this man had been healed. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that if this man had faith in the name of Jesus, he was also saved to eternal life. In fact, this is exactly the way salvation works. Someone offers what they have, the gospel. And all it takes from the other person is an almost imperceptible response to what Christ has already done. Just a mustard seed of faith in who Jesus is just enough trust to make a feeble attempt to stand in his name, and before you know it, he or she is jumping up and down for Jesus. That's because God is the major player in the work of salvation. All we have to do is respond to his leading by placing our faith in Christ. And yet, we absolutely must respond. You can't just lay there sit there, wait there, frozen in indecision. No, you must respond. You've got to try to get up with a shred of faith in Christ that he is going to take you across the threshold of salvation. But this message is mostly about how we can better share with others. So let me get back to the point. What principle for evangelism can we learn from the first few verses of this passage? We need to take note of what Peter and John did not offer this person, who, by the way, was in a state of desperation. We are also surrounded by desperate people. More and more. What are we offering them? Do we offer a $20 bill? Or do we offer Jesus? Do we offer a better life? Or do we offer eternal life? Do we offer some version of a prosperity gospel? Or do we offer a life of following Christ, including the suffering and trials that come with it? 
causes us to offer the wrong things. Usually good motives, right? We just want people to know Christ. We want, to, we want them to be saved. Sometimes that can lead us to say things that aren't really quite true. See, there we go again, trying to take responsibility for their response, which is out of our control. We need to be careful what we offer people. And that goes beyond things like silver and gold. I'm not even so sure that peace, love, and joy like a river are the experience of every Christian. At least not in the way most people think of it. It's true that faith in Christ brings us peace with God and the love of God and the joy of God. I know that's true. But unless you're ready to explain what that means and what it doesn't mean, you might want to be careful in offering it because people can easily hear us promising a bed of roses with Christianity. Most of us know that is not a true picture of the Christian life. A more biblical picture, honestly, might be something along the lines of martyrdom. We might not face literal martyrdom in this country yet, but the biblical picture of Christianity absolutely includes suffering and persecution and taking up our cross as the direct result of putting our faith in Christ. If you don't experience persecution for your faith in Jesus, you might not really be following him. And while I'm not suggesting we tell people that, you know, it stinks to be a Christian, um, we absolutely do need to remember that the good news about Christ is generally more about spiritual and eternal blessings, not so much about worldly and temporal blessings. The good news is about forgiveness and eternal life with God, not happiness and a trouble-free 80 or 90 years in this world. Beyond that, being saved means we find real life in serving God instead of serving ourselves. Peter said, I don't have any silver and gold. He wasn't lying. He likely didn't have a red cent to his name, but he did have something. He had the contentment that comes when a person learns to walk through this life with God. That's the kind of thing we can offer, life with God in Christ. Peter had a new life to offer this man for sure, a life centered on the kingdom of God. Please remember that what we offer in our good news is not of this world. We don't offer silver or gold or other temporary bonuses. We must be careful to offer the right things. Forgiveness from God and eternal life with him through faith in Christ. The second principle we can learn from this example of early church evangelism is this. Apply the power of personal testimony. Look back at our text, starting with verse 8. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. They wanted to see what happened. Now, I realize that this scene involves an overt, on-the-spot, undeniable, physical healing, something we may not often be able to du duplicate. But I believe God wants us to see some principles here beyond the healing. God wants us to see and understand the power of personal testimony. Not only was this man healed, but as I explained, he had been saved by faith in the name of Jesus. Notice that Peter and John did not leave this new believer behind for fear that he would say the wrong thing. No, they brought him with them into the temple. They made use of his enthusiastic new faith, and they encouraged him to share his personal testimony. They allowed this man's story to influence others for Christ. I just love that phrase in verse 10. They were taking note of him as being the one who used to, and then you can fill in the blank to apply it today, the one who used to be an agnostic, the one who used to think the whole Jesus thing was a silly little myth, the one who used to be selfish and empty, the one who used to be a drug addict, the one who used to be a jerk. 
The people were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to this man. His changed life was obvious and convincing. This scene also reminds me of the one in John chapter 9 when Jesus restores the sight of a blind man and the religious leaders are questioning the man as to who he believes Jesus to be. The man basically ignores all their silly insinuations about Jesus and says, look, all I know is I once was blind, but now I see. And you might not remember it, but the man actually goes on in that passage debating those religious leaders, making the case that this that his personal experience, his personal testimony should be enough for them to believe in Christ as well. Most of them scoff at him and send him away. But we also know that some of those same religious leaders eventually believed in Christ. That's the power of personal testimony. The early church understood that new faith is particularly contagious. I understand that too. And that's what is so great and so important about baptism. Through baptism, we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears that real people with names and personalities and stories are still coming to Jesus. We can see that someone else is not afraid to stand up and say, I have, been a fo- I have become a follower of Jesus and he is my savior. We will have our annual Baptique, our, our baptism and barbecue on Sunday, August 9th at the home of Nathan and Jessica Rommel. Sunday, August 9th, right down that day, they have a pool that will work well. They have a place to park with plenty of space. So please put the date on your calendar and don't miss it. More importantly, let me know if you'd like to talk about being baptized. It's going to be awesome. Back to the point, which is the power of your own personal testimony. And let me tell you something unfortunate that I have seen happen all too often with people who are being saved. I've seen folks come to Christ in a powerful way and then shortly thereafter water down their own story just a little bit, robbing their testimony of its power. Let me explain with an illustration. Fred starts attending Go Church. Fred comes to understand that although he has been religious at different times in his life, or maybe even at all times, he has never really come to that point of trusting Christ as his own Savior. Maybe he was baptized as a baby and thought that was good enough for salvation. Maybe he had gone forward in a service at a younger age, but he'd never experienced the life change that happens when a person is truly saved. One Sunday morning, Fred actually crosses the line of faith. He nails it down. He receives the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Maybe he prays a prayer to that effect, and he knows something is different. The Holy Spirit moves in, and real change starts to take place. Fred eventually lets one of our leaders know about the experience and winds up being baptized to show everyone that he's now received Christ as his Savior. At first, he talks as if he understands that this simple little act of faith on that one Sunday morning, when he prayed to give his life to Jesus, changed everything, that he has actually now been saved, whereas he was not saved before. He once was blind, but now he sees. But then something not so good happens over time. For reasons I don't completely understand, Fred doesn't want to talk about that decision or that conversion experience anymore. It seems that he does not really want to be considered a new believer. He was in church as a kid, after all. He kind of doesn't like the idea that at one point he wasn't saved. He starts to talk about it all as if it was part of a journey. And he stops telling people about the day he was saved. I've seen countless people do this, and I think it's a real problem in the church today. All of us need to understand that salvation is a one-time experience. When it comes to helping other people become believers, my advice to you is that you nail down the moment of your salvation and stop questioning it. Talk about that moment as the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior. This will really help when you're trying to lead someone else to that moment. Listen, folks, when you are actually saved, your eternal destiny turns 180 degrees. When you are actually saved from that point forward, you stand forgiven and clean before God but not before. 
When you are actually saved, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and you start to become more like Christ. I think 99% of Christ followers know in their gut when exactly that occurred. For me, it happened when I was six years old. I remember it well. I remember crying about my sin. I remember feeling forgiven after I prayed to trust Christ. I remember starting to understand that God was now inside me. I've never seriously wondered if this actually happened later because it really happened for me that day. See, if I really felt like salvation happened when I was 16 or 35, then I would tell people it happened when I was 16 or 35. If I really actually came to Christ by faith last Sunday, then I would tell you it happened last Sunday. Don't destroy the power of your own testimony by failing to identify the moment when you were saved. The person you're talking to needs to get it that there is a line of faith. Until they cross it, they aren't saved. You need to be able to tell them how that happened for you. In Luke's story, this previously lame beggar was walking and leaping and praising God all over the place. He was just oozing with personal testimony. He knew when it had happened. And so did all those saved at Pentecost. Remember, they didn't say the 3,000. They weren't going around saying they just kind of always been saved. They knew when and where it happens. And because of testimonies like these, as we read last time, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Christianity becomes contagious through the power of personal testimony. One of the things that we've always wanted to do, we keep talking about doing, and we're going to do eventually is video testimonies. Uh, we we want to do that. Uh, salvation testimonies, maybe some testimonies about uh, your experience at this church, you know, some of both. All kinds of t- testimony is a powerful thing. And um, so we'll we'll be working on that as we go forward. So start working up what you would say if you're asked to be one of those videos. Now, right on the heels of this idea that you need to tell your salvation story, let me give you the third principle. Here it is. Keep turning their attention to Christ. For the sake of time, I'm not going to reread all of the sections of our text that demonstrate this principle. I'll just remind you that when the people wanted to show their amazement to to Peter and John and basically to give them credit, they immediately and repeatedly turned people's attention to Christ. And this is a principle we can see throughout the book of Acts. They absolutely took no glory for themselves. And they always pointed their attention, the attention of their audience, specifically back to Jesus. By the way, there is a difference between pointing to God and pointing to Christ. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. And in this, he was distinct. The savior of the world, the Messiah. See, the people who Peter and John sought to evangelize had no problem giving Glory to God for the miracle. They, they, they didn't need any guidance to view this as an act of God. Faith in God was common ground. And, and Peter used that common ground to share with them. But it was common ground to believe in God and that God could do these things. These were Jews. But Peter and John didn't leave it at that. They knew the key issue was that the people needed to receive Christ as Savior. Not just believe in Yahweh God. Peter told them flat out that faith in Christ or the lack thereof was the key issue for their eternal future. Had they left the people praising God for the miracle, no evangelism would have taken place here. Evangelism is sharing the good news about Christ. Today, we find it fairly easy to talk about God, but extremely difficult to talk about Christ. Have you ever noticed that? I don't know why that is. It could be our enemy. (laughs) I think Satan knows that people can believe in God and still reject Christ. He loves to keep people just barely on the wrong side of the truth. That's why I believe Satan has gone to such lengths to make Jesus and Christ taboo words in our culture, in public discourse, in our schools, everywhere, just in our own thought process, just not wanting to say those words to, to friends. The only way that we can say Jesus and Christ and be okay is if we use his name in vain. Then it's fine. 
Well, listen, when you find opportunities to share the good news, don't just talk about God. Swallow hard and say the name of Jesus. Because just as we saw in the story, there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. When you're telling people your spiritual story, don't say, yeah, I remember when I put my faith in God. Some Muslims would say that. But they will find no salvation in their faith. The Bible says there's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that that name is Jesus Christ. There is power in his name. Don't let Satan or political correctness keep you from talking about Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh, the one who died and yet lives. And Jesus Christ is the only one who saves. You see, in our culture, the word God has come to mean everything from Allah to um, an alien life form, secretly in charge, to a, a female deity who cares more about insects and trees than people. If you really want someone to understand the good news, you need to talk about Jesus Christ because to talk about Jesus is to make it clear which God you are talking about. Jesus Christ is God distinguished from all the other so-called gods. Just like Peter and John in the story, we need to keep pointing their attention to Christ, the only one who died for sin and rose again to conquer death. As harsh as this may sound, there is no good news in God without Christ. Remember that. There is no good news in God without Christ. If not for Jesus Christ, we would be destined for the wrath of God. That's all we would have to look forward to is the wrath of God, not paradise or peace with God. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved from the judgment of a holy God. This is an important principle of evangelism. People often try to change the subject. Um, they'll talk about a general idea of a God type of concept, or they'll, they'll go to lesser concerns uh, these days, especially like social or moral issues. When it comes to evangelism, we must always try to bring the conversation back around to the biblical Jesus, and especially to the one-two punch of his saving work on the cross and his defeat of death through the resurrection. Now, maybe focusing on Christ in this way means someone won't respond in the positive because it's just too exclusive. But once again, that is not your responsibility. Leave their response to God and learn the power of staying focused on that which actually is the good news. This leads us to the fourth principle. Don't leave out the hard part. Don't leave out the hard part. If you leave out the hard part, you'll render the good part irrelevant. What is the hard part? Well, basically that we're all sinners destined for God's wrath apart from Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The wages of that sin is eternal death, Romans 6.23. Let's look back at what Peter said, starting with verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life. Wow, that's, um, that's pretty accusatory in nature, isn't it? But they needed to hear it. Notice verse 26, for you first, came to you first, Jews. God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways your wicked ways. Later even called them sinners. Can you imagine? Today, we would more likely say to someone, now, I know you're a really good person, but you still need Jesus. We remove the power of the good news by watering down the bad. This is like saying, you don't really have cancer, but would you like to have the cure anyway? And folks, I've been guilty of this. I've been very guilty of this. It's very hard not to be guilty of this. So don't feel like the Lone Ranger. I need this reminder as much as anyone. But check this out. The audience in this scene were God-fearing Jews. They were at the temple to worship him at the time of prayer. 
They were God's chosen people. They were keepers of the law. Most of them were devoted to God's word. They had large portions of it memorized. For heaven's sakes, they were tithers. They likely had never been told that they were wicked before. And how exactly were they wicked? They were wicked because they had rejected God's Messiah and even had him killed. Now that is wicked. But the root of their sin was the same as ours, unbelief. They had not believed that Jesus was God's son. They had not accepted God's way of salvation. Peter told them they needed to repent of the wickedness of their unbelief. Because you see, repentance is not going to happen if everyone already thinks they're okay. Listen, I'm okay and you're okay is not conducive to real evangelism. Without a personal faith in Christ, we are not okay. We are a long ways from okay. We are destined for the wrath of God and eternal separation from him in a place of torment called hell. This is a message most Christians and maybe even most pastors have become too frightened to share. But we are not doing anyone any favors by keeping the hard part to ourselves. You don't need to go to the extreme of embracing universalism in order to have the same negative effect on your evangelism. You can know that the Bible is clear about the reality of hell, but if you are afraid to ever talk about it, or if you systematically remove it from your message, you have effectively told everyone there is nothing they need to be saved from. In fact, you don't even need to tell them anything because they're already hearing this message everywhere else in this modern world that really... If there is a heaven, everybody's going there. All roads lead to heaven. Are you saying anything different when you leave out the hard part? No. To their ears, you're just throwing out another potential path. One of many they could choose. And meanwhile, the path you're suggesting is far from popular. They'd be more open to hearing about Buddha or to hear about peace through transcendental meditation or something. Since what they're hearing is that there's nothing really to be saved from, but rather just different paths to take that might make life a little bit better. Folks, I hate telling people the hard part. I hate it. And when I do, I try to speak with humility. I try to be as gentle as possible. Say things like, I wish this weren't true. <laughs> But do I love that person or not? Is it really loving to leave out the hard part or is it the most hateful thing we could ever do? The early church didn't leave the hard part out of their evangelism. And that's why they experienced the greatest spiritual awakening of history. People were able to see their need for salvation because their desperation for Christ was powerfully and boldly pointed out. As a result, thousands came to Christ for what only he could give. Rescue rescue. Don't leave out the hard part. The fifth evangelistic principle we can learn from this passage is this, include the persuasiveness of prophecy. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this one today, but if you look back at the text, you'll see that Peter quotes several Old Testament passages to try to make the case that Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecies. This may depend upon your audience, whether you use this or to what extent you use this. But there are times when it's helpful. Jesus was the promised one, the long-awaited Savior. Everything the Bible had said would happen to the Christ happened to him. And most of these fulfillments were out of his control. There were over 600 prophecies about the Christ that came true perfectly in Jesus, such as where he would be born and, and that he would be killed and how he would be killed and that he would rise again. His fulfillment of all of the prophecies proved he was the Christ, the one who God had promised would be the savior of the world. We may not need to be as specific or extensive as Peter was, but it can be an effective evangelistic tool to help people see that our religion didn't start in 33 AD. Our faith goes back to the beginning of human history, unlike any other religion out there. But that can be a helpful point. Now, the last evangelistic principle we're gonna pull out of our text is something we see throughout the book of Acts. When you have an opportunity to share the good news about Jesus, you should always show them how to respond. 
Look at verse 19. Peter says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now we could do a whole sermon on this in terms of how we should apply it as believers right about now. Uh, There could be a sermon done on this about revival. But Peter was actually saying this to those who had not previously believed in the Lord's Christ. And notice that he tells them exactly what they need to do with the information he has shared. Peter doesn't tell them they're already okay just because they've listened to him, maybe even tacitly agreed. He shows them the path to salvation. Gifts only become yours once you have received them. The good news only becomes good for an individual when he or she actually chooses to apply it. This may be the most important part of evangelism. If you don't show people the appropriate response to what you have shared, you have basically left them a treasure chest with no key. I'm not saying you should always try to close the deal at that moment. Like I said last week, I give myself permission to simply share. But part of that sharing should be telling them how they could respond if they wanted to. If they're not ready to respond, no problem, but you need to tell them how they can. Reading through our text, you'll see that the response Peter called for, the response we need to call for is all about faith and repentance. The course of action we need to lead people to is to repent or to turn away from the sin of unbelief by turning to Christ in faith. Two sides of the same coin. Repent and believe. Notice that we're not talking about repenting of specific sins but rather repentance from the sin of unbelief or repenting from the state of sinfulness that that we are all in by default. These Jews were devout. They weren't doing a lot of no-nos, okay? Peter wasn't saying, stop sleeping around. They would have been appalled. He wasn't saying, stop drinking too much or whatever. He was saying, repent, turn away from unbelief and from a reliance on your own efforts to get to God. The point is that a person needs to repent or turn away from everything else and turn to Jesus, the only one who saves. Really, the point is turning to Jesus. Our text says John was also there with Peter that day. Later, that same John wrote this, verse 17 of chapter 3 of John. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. There's that faith. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. See, that's why we got to turn. We're already condemned. We got to turn to belief, turn away from unbelief that we're already condemned to turn to him. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Most of you know that when the Bible uses the word believed in this way, it's speaking of an active faith. It does not mean to simply affirm the existence of Jesus Christ, but it means you place your trust in him for salvation. People need to repent of the fact that they have not placed their trust in Christ. People need to turn away from a reliance on self-righteousness or empty religion or trying to be good enough, and they need to turn to Jesus for grace and salvation. We need to show them how to respond If someone is ready to respond, probably the best thing to do is to lead them in a prayer to repent of unbelief and place their faith in Jesus. Those today who are saying that praying a prayer is not a good way to do it have mostly led about zero people to Jesus in their lives. They mostly are good at writing books and talking. If you really want to know something practical that you can do, When a person is ready, you can ask them to repeat a prayer after you. And in that prayer, help them repent from sinful unbelief, from living for self, and to put their trust in Jesus, to give their life to Jesus instead. Don't tell me what Billy Graham used to do and what I've done with countless children and adults doesn't work anymore. Of course it works. That's how I was saved. 
That's how both my kids were saved. Some preachers and authors today have deconstructed how we do things until if we accept what they tell us, there's practically nothing left. As Peter shared the good news that this salvation was available, he always made it clear that there was something they needed to do, not in order to earn it, but in order to receive it. He didn't act like everything was already good for them, as if they would be zapped with salvation, whether they liked it or not. It wasn't as if they just, just by having this new information, they were saved. Instead, he clearly called for a response. They needed to respond to God. How do you respond to God? Through prayer? Think back to the story in our text one more time. Now that the crowd at the temple had heard the truth, they simply faced an ultimatum, receive or reject. Repent or stay as you are. Believe or don't believe. Trust or don't trust. Those were their choices. Peter made sure his audience knew they had a choice. This was characteristic of the evangelism of the early church. And if we want to be as effective as they were, we need to call for a response as well. I'm not saying the response has to be in a prayer. But if not, what would you suggest? Is it best for them to tell you or would it be even better for them to tell God? Now, I don't know about you, but I needed this message today because the fields are white to the harvest and people need to hope. They need hope. Minds are open, hearts are searching and I need to be reminded of these principles of evangelism because I don't always remember to heed every one of these, but it would be better if I did. That's what I love about the Bible. It always helps mold me when the standard is placed in front of my eyes once again. I hope these principles have been a good help to you as well, church, because as soon as we start living outside these walls, the houses, again, we need to become messengers for Christ. Really, we're there. We can already start doing that. This is go church, not stay church. This is go church, not wait church. There are always ways to go, even now. We're supposed to be known for going with the gospel. That's the number one idea behind the name of our church. Go and make disciples. Go and share the good news with everyone everywhere. That's Mark's version. Not mine, Mark, the, the, the gospel writer, Mark. That's his version. Go and share the gospel with everyone everywhere. So who among us is ready to tell somebody the good news? Who is your one? Who are you praying for? Who among us is ready to share the gospel with a real person and trust God with the results? I hope some of you are ready because otherwise you might say, eh, well, I didn't really get much out of that particular message. You'll only get something out of this message if you apply it. Let me know, will you? Tell me your story. Tell me who you talk to. Let me know. But right before I pray, I just want to close by saying, I just said you should always give an opportunity for a response, right? So here's your opportunity. Even though I've been talking to believers about how they should do evangelism, in so doing, you've heard what it takes to be saved. If you boil it down all the way to its least denominator it's putting your faith in who Jesus is and what he did on the cross it's putting your faith in who Jesus is and his death and resurrection it's, that's it putting your faith in him and what he did to be enough to bring you to God to, to let you have peace with God to be forgiven to have eternal life with him we can throw in the word repentance. Many times they do in scripture. Many times they don't. John 3.16 doesn't mention it. Many passages don't. The reason is it's two sides to the same coin. You cannot put your faith in God without repenting. It's, it's a turning. You're remember that verse we read about being condemned already? So that's why it's repentance to, to have faith. To truly have faith in Christ already is repentance. You're turning away from your current state to salvation in him. Just put your faith in Jesus. You just got to put your faith and your trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross. 
and the power of his resurrection to be saved. Let me lead a prayer in case you want to do that right now. God, I do pray for those who maybe today's the day that they want to mark it down. It's so simple because you did the complicated part. Pretty complicated for God to come in the form of a baby and to to live a life and die on a cross, pay the price for our sins. So God, I pray for that person right now that could understand it's really that simple. Just to say, yes, I believe. To tell you in their heart right now, to say to your spirit who's listening, yes, I'm turning away from everything else. Every other way that I've tried to be okay. And I'm turning to Jesus and only Jesus. Save me, take my life. I, I, just, want, I just want to serve you, I want to be yours. Take my life, I surrender. And God, I pray for that person that made that simple decision today that they would know that they know that you have promised us so many times in the Bible that if we are, confess our sin to you, if, we, if we'll turn to Jesus, that you're faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth in Jesus as Lord and, and his resurrection power, that, he's, that the gospel is true, who he is and what he's done that you will save us. Your word is so clear. So for that person right now, I pray they would know that you've saved them, that your Holy Spirit would come in and and begin to change us and make us more like Jesus. Help that person be ready to be baptized, to have that moment of public confession, that moment of of standing up and saying, I wanna follow Jesus with my life. I'm not ashamed of him. Look at what he's done for me. This is the least I can do. This is the first step I can do to say thank you. To show others that I believe. As a testimony and maybe even an opportunity for friends and family to see that I am one who's come to Christ and maybe they would want to do that too. Thank you for working in our hearts and lives, God. And Lord, I do pray that next Sunday we could have the weather that would help us to be able to have a wonderful time together at our drive-in service. Um, We know that you're sovereign. We know that you have a lot more to worry about than our little service, but I'm gonna ask that you would give us good weather that day. Thank you for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you wanna learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.